Lord, thank you for this evening. Thank you for Michael. Thank you for just the amazing time we've had with him. Uh, just uh, how you've gifted him and how much time he has spent studying the life of Jesus and the individual gospel writers. Uh, speak to us tonight through him. And uh, Lord, especially as we look at uh, Jesus in the gospel of John, we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Okay, well, again, we listen to the voice of the, of the author. We listen to the life situation and we listen to structure. That's kind of how we get started. Um, we saw with, with um, someone like Luke and even with someone like Mark, uh, that question, who the author, who's the author can be very helpful. Not so helpful with Matthew, just because we don't know that much about Matthew. John, of all the authors, I think is the one that, um, you know, asking uh, about who's the author and what's the author's voice. That tends to be a, a really helpful with John. Uh, we already know that John uh, is 92% unique. 92% of John isn't in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Now, in the in recent years, what's interested me is understanding the uniqueness of Matthew, Mark, and Luke from from one another because I I think it's a disservice to just lump them together and say, oh, those are, those are the synoptics. Um, because we've talked about this, they each have, you know, their own unique voice and their own unique interests and structure and that sort of thing too. But John is just sort of a whole other world. And, you know, for, for most people, um, you know, John tends to be their favorite gospel. Uh, for me, it's a toss up between Luke uh, and John. Uh, so who, uh, voice of the author, we know a lot about John. Um, we know his brother's name, we know his father's name, and we might even know his mother's name, which is pretty incredible. Um, you know, we know that he, his brother's James, we know his father's Zebedee. Um, and here's a really interesting idea, and I would not be dogmatic about this, but I think it's a fascinating idea. There's a very good chance that Jesus and John are related. And uh, this is how, uh, this is how we come, come up with that. Um, at, uh, that they, they might have been first cousins. That is, their mothers might have been sisters. And let me give you the references uh, so you can look at this for yourself. Again, no, never be dogmatic about what the Bible's not dogmatic about. But if they are cousins, it does explain some things. It, it explains why John entrusts um, his mother to, uh, why Jesus entrusts his mother to John from the cross. I think if they're first cousins, that, that makes a lot of sense. So here, here, are, the, here are the three references. And the, the way it works is there, there are three women who are uh, described at the resurrection. Uh, the first two are named. The third is designated three different ways. Now, that might mean she's three different women. And again, I would never be dogmatic about this. But if these three different designations are referring to one woman, then Jesus and John are cousins. In Mark 15, 40, uh, there's Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, uh, and a, a woman named Salome. So that might be John's mother, Salome, okay? Matthew 27, 56 mentions the two Marys. And the third woman is described as the mother of Zebedee's children, okay? So that makes her John's mother. So if Salome is the same person as, as uh, the mother of Zebedee's children, those are, those are two pieces of her identity. And the third Peace comes from John 19, 25, um, where this third woman is described as his mother's sister, that is Jesus, his mother's sister. That makes Salome Mary's sister, 
if this is the same woman, and again, I'm not being dogmatic about this. My, my academic reason is I think this is a really cool idea. And it explains things. It explains the closeness that Jesus has to John, leaning up against him at the Last Supper and that sort of thing. So uh, again, I would never be dogmatic about it, but I think, I think it's very interesting uh, that in chapter 19, Jesus entrusts his mother to John. And that makes sense if John uh, was his uh, first co uh, cousin. Um, for us, the most important aspect of who John is, is he's the last living disciple. He's the, 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 all, all the rest of, uh, Peter's been dead for 30, 40 years when John writes his gospel. He's the last living disciple. We believe John was written around 90 uh, to 100 AD. Um, and that means a lot of things. Again, what we're trying to do is, is, is take a fact and then ask what the fact means. And what does it mean when a, a 90 year old disciple of Jesus, the last living disciple of Jesus, what does it mean when he writes a gospel? What it means is, and especially because he's the leader of uh, a circuit of churches in the Roman province of Asia, what it means is he's been preaching and teaching this material for decades. And I think that's part of the elegance of the Gospel of John. You know, we saw Mark, Mark is fairly straightforward uh, and, and fairly simple if Mark is in fact writing down Peter's account. But what happens over 40, 50 years of teaching this and interacting with the Holy Spirit uh, is you all of a sudden you get this elegance. So uh, John speaks, uh, the, the miracles that Jesus has or that Jesus does all have this revelatory character that goes back to, you know, Jesus, well, only in John, Jesus will uh, feed the 5,000. He'll say, I'm the bread of life. He'll open the eyes of the blind. He'll say, I'm the light of the world. He'll raise Lazarus. He'll say, I'm the life. You know, there's this sort of elegant connection, and I think that partly comes from the fact that John has been teaching and preaching this for so long, that sort of um, sort of elegance. Although, I mean, I realize he could have written it the, the day after by, you know, virtue of the Holy Spirit, but I'm just, I'm just doing my thing. I'm trying to do my thing here. So 92% um, unique, um, and John, um, John leaves things out. Uh, and I think he does it on purpose. And one of, that's one of the really interesting things to look at in the Gospel of John. So let me give you a little list of things that he leaves out. Because every time he leaves something out, he substitutes something. And again, if you're, if you're sensitive to this, you can see his mind working. Uh, he knows that that corpus that is represented in the synoptics. He knows you know that material. And uh, listen to the things he leaves out. Uh, he leaves out birth narratives, right? No shepherds in John, no wise men in John. But if you think about it, he, he adds something that no, no other gospel has, and that is the incarnation. The beginning was the word. And you see the elegance of that? In fact, the opening of John is really sermonic. Uh, there's a real sermonic char character. There is not a single parable in John. Now, that should really bother you. Uh, but what's so elegant about John is he presents the life of Jesus parabolically. And again, Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. He feeds 5,000 people. He, he raises Lazarus. I'm the life. This sort of, there's this parable that is his life uh, that's, uh, you know, that, that I think is very elegant. Um, no Lord's Supper. That should really bother you. There is no Lord's Supper in John. He leaves that out, but what does he substitute? We all know. He substitutes the washing of the disciples' feet. 
Now, I suggest to you that John is the first person that can bring himself to tell you that story. The other gospel writers know that story, uh, but I think John is the first one who can bring himself to tell you of this humiliating thing that Jesus did. Um, you know, Peter says, you know, you shouldn't be doing this. And Jesus says, if you don't get this, you don't get me. You know, Jesus is the servant Lord who, who will, uh, uh, again, uh, you know, um, Paul will say he empties himself, but I think that, that it's almost a living parable when he dresses himself like a servant and washes their, their feet. Um, the other thing we have in John are these uh, beautiful sermonic conclusions, I call them, uh, little blocks that sum up things and sound very much like a sermon. He'll use, he'll use language like, this is the verdict. And that sounds like preaching to me. Um, so that, that's kind of br briefly, John. Let me, let me talk a little bit about some of the uh, motifs that I find really interesting. Uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are based on the Law and the Prophets. The Gospel of John is based on the wisdom writings. Uh, the wisdom writings were just, just brought into the Jewish canon around the same time John is writing his gospel between 90 and 100 in a little town called Yavne, the, they were reforming Judaism. We got no more temple. We can't sacrifice anymore. So what's Judaism going to look like? So in this little town called Yavne in Israel, the, the rabbis reformed Judaism. They came up with a canon and that sort of thing. Rabbinic Judaism basically gets formed. And they accepted the wisdom writings. Before that, they weren't accepted. There wasn't a Jewish canon, so to speak. And we know from reading the Gospels that there was disagreement, that the, uh, the, um, the priests accepted the Torah. They weren't interested in the prophets. The Pharisees accept, accepted the Torah and the prophets. Uh, so this, this canon didn't really come together until 90, which interestingly enough is the same era, same time when John is writing his Gospel. And he, I think he shows the confidence he has in the wisdom writings by basing his his gospel on, uh, on the wisdom writing. Jesus is the wisdom of God. Jesus is, is the word of God. And uh, the light shines in the darkness. The darkness can't comprehend it, that sort of thing. Uh, but the way John, one of the ways John presents Jesus as the wisdom of God is showing how he is misunderstood. Now that, if John has a major uh, sort of sub-theme it's what I call the mis mis uh, motif of misunderstanding. And it works this way. Whenever Jesus says anything significant, and he usually sets it aside by a double amen. In, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, he'll say amen once. And it's a totally unique thing that Jesus does. Knowing, you know, I've, I've never discovered a satisfactory explanation for it. I mean, amen is a Greek word. I mean, Hebrew word, and we all know what it means. It means I agree with you. And we say amen at the ends of, end, ends of prayers. Jesus says it at the front of, of things that he says. He says it once in the synoptics, and in John, only John, he'll say, amen, amen. And the translators don't know what to do with it. Verily, verily, King James came up with. NIV says, I tell you the truth. Those words aren't there. That, those, that's a translator just coming to, trying to cope, uh, cope with it. Uh, I was part of the CSB translation, and I begged the team, let's translate it literally. Let's let the ambiguity be there you know, put amen, amen there. And I don't think they did that. So, but, but this is how it works. Jesus will, will make a, a profound statement. And the very next uh, response indicates not that the people kind of don't understand. They have absolutely no idea of what he's talking about. Let me give you a few of them. Um, 
Nicodemus is the first one. Uh, Jesus says to Nicodemus, you must be born again. What does Nicodemus say? Can a man enter his mother's womb a second time to be born? See, Nicodemus has no idea. And Nicodemus should have understood that because he knows his Old Testament. He knows people like Ezekiel talk about a new birth uh, and having a new heart and that sort of thing. But the only explanation is that it hasn't happened to Nicodemus. So when Jesus talks about being born again, that he just doesn't get it. Jesus tells the woman at the well, I've got water to drink. You'll never be thirsty again. See this very deep spiritual thing. And what does she say? Is it because you don't have a bucket that you're asking me about water? Um, The disciples don't understand when he talks about food. The Jews don't know where Jesus is going. At one point, they think he's going to commit suicide, which I find just unbelievable. Um, There's confusion about Lazarus and sleep. He says, Lazarus... um, you know, Lazarus is, uh, I'm going to go wake him up. Lazarus is asleep. I'm going to go wake him up. And the disciples, what do they say? Well, if he's asleep, he'll get better. And Jesus goes, no, I, he's dead. And I'm glad I wasn't there. Uh, uh, Martha's confused when Jesus offers her com- comfort. Um, when Jesus speaks of himself as the way, when he speaks of himself as the bread, he's, uh, he's misunderstood. Um, when he speaks of, uh, about John's death in chapter 21, he's, uh, he's misunderstood. In fact, the whole, 20, the whole last chapter of John is based on a misunderstanding. Um, uh, Jesus did not say um, that he's going to remain, remain alive until I come. He only said, what is that to you? So that's, that's given as the reason for the, uh, for the, uh, the whole 21st uh, chapter being there. Um, I've, got, I've got a list of the motifs of misunderstanding. I don't want to count them, but one, two, three. I mean, there's at least 20 or 20 or 25, okay? That's one of the uniquenesses. Another uniqueness of John is that he whispers, uh, and by that I mean a, a, an aside, a parenthetical statement. Now, I realize a parenthetical statement is a decision that the translators make. Parentheses aren't part of the Greek. Greek doesn't have parentheses. But I'm talking about asides. Uh, and if, if you look at them, Matthew has one. Um, Mark has 15, and when Mark has an aside, he's usually translating Aramaic. That's what his asides are. Uh, Luke has six, okay? John has 59, and I mean things like this happened at Bethany. It was about 10 in the morning. Um, He was speaking about the sanctuary. Um, Jesus already had in mind what he was going to do. There are these little explanations of what's going on, and again, I think this is because John has been teaching this all these years, and he knows that you need this information. One of the best ones is uh, in, in the seven, Jesus' brothers are making fun of him or mocking him. And if you just had their statement, you wouldn't know. You know, Jesus' brothers say, no one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret, go to Jerusalem. And that's, if you just had that, you'd think, well, cool, Jesus' brothers really believe in him. They want him to go and reveal himself. And what does John do? He whispers in that, that they, they didn't really believe in him. See, so you know that that was the tone of their statement. And uh, that's one of the uniquenesses of John's, uh, John's voice. Uh, he's very interested in Jesus being the fulfillment of uh, Deuteronomy 18, the prophet like it to Moses. Uh, there are at least 20 references to, and it's usually just, it's usually just called, Jesus is referred to as the prophet but whenever you read that, you know, that's the prophet like unto Moses. It's there 14, I just counted, there's, it's there 14 times. 
So very interested. And, and who is the prophet like unto Moses? What, what is distinctive about the prophet like unto Moses? He only says what God tells him to say. And Jesus and John will say, I'm only saying what I've seen, or, uh, you know, what I'm, I'm only telling what the, saying what the father told me to say. He says that kind of thing. So Jesus is very much uh, the prophet like it to Moses. Um, let me see what else I've got. Um, yeah, basically, uh, when you're reading John, these are the things you look for. You look for this very elegant tone and a very, what we call a very high Christology. John's Christology is very developed and very high. And I think that one reason is he's been teaching and preaching this for so long. Uh, look for that distinctive material, a 90, 92% unique. Now, if it was 40, you might think, oh, well, you know, there's, you know, that's just a happenstance. But let me tell you, 92% unique indicates he's doing this on purpose, right? That's, that's, he's determined to, to fill in the gaps and give you what's not in these, this other corpus, 92% unique. Um, yeah, and this is a new one for me. I just realized that John is the only gospel. There are 11 scenes in John's gospel that are J Jesus and just one other person. And they're long, some of them are a whole chapter long. That's one of the uniquenesses of John long and 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 i think that's one reason we love i mean jesus and nicodemus that long talk with nicodemus jesus and the woman at the well long discussion uh the the man born blind the, the man who was lame the whole chapter on the man who was lame um so I, I i think that's certainly one of the uniquenesses uh motif of misunderstanding uh and the whispering asides and finally and then i'll shut up uh, when you pay, pay attention to the structure of John, John is very interested in the last week of Jesus' life. In the synoptics, the Passion Weeks, Week takes up a third of their content. In John, half of his gospel is the last week of Jesus' life uh, before the resurrection. And I think that's remarkable. And I don't really have a good explanation for that, uh, why, why, why it is that way. But, um, I mean, without, without getting, you know, kind of... It, deep and looking at specific passages. Um, let, let me just read you a couple of the sermonic conclusions so you can hear this tone I'm talking about. Certainly, you know, the, the prologue, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's, that's preaching. Uh, in verse 10, he was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. That's introducing this theme of misunderstanding. Um, um, this is later on 16 from the fullness of his grace. We've all received one blessing after another. The law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. That's preaching. I think that has the tone, uh, uh of preaching. Um, so very, very elegant. Uh, the, the intimate moments, let me just read the list off to you. The intimate moments are Nathaniel in chapter one, Nicodemus in chapter three, the Samaritan woman in chapter four, the official son in chapter four, uh, the person that I call the man of excuses uh, in chapter five, the woman taken in adultery, that's only in John chapter eight. Uh, but there's a long story of Jesus and one other, one other person, Jesus and the man born blind, that's a whole chapter. Uh, Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, that's chapter 11. Uh, Mary Magdalene, chapter 20, the restoration of Peter in chapter 21. Those are long scenes of Jesus talking to just one or maybe two people. And uh, I just, I've just seen that. Uh, and I, 
I think maybe that's part of the fact that he's a pastor. He's interested in seeing Jesus engaging with people and uh, and he was an eyewitness for you know for those things. So how cool is that? So that that's basically all I've got. Um, certainly love certainly love love John. So uh, any questions or Hey folks, any uh, reflections on your own reading or uh, questions for Michael? Go ahead, Waylon. Just an interesting observation. Um, when you mentioned about um, John did not include the, the Last Supper, yeah, um, but he actually I realized that he actually substitute with because I make a note of the flash. So he actually substitute with uh, I think. Uh, a chapter in thirteen. Well, he talked about the flesh, eating the flesh, and oh, drinking yeah. the blood. Uh huh. So it sounds like he actually substitute with that. You know, that's sick. The God's Supper. Yeah, that's. Uh, let me. Let me. Yeah, I don't remember which chapter yeah. that was. I was uh, reading it. Um, chapter. Re reference is made to the Last Supper, but it's just after the meal. He takes up the towel, and that's thirteen. That's when he washes their feet. But yeah. Uh, and yeah, but uh, you know, one thing unique about John is that he was saying that you eat my flesh and you bring my blood. And that seems to be something that substitute. Yeah, the, uh, I see. yeah, I see what you're saying. Yeah, that's, that's just what I observe in the whole process. Yeah, yeah that was horrible. He, he, said that in, he, he said that in a synagogue in Capernaum. That's not synagogue talk, right? You don't talk like that in a synagogue. <laughs> no. I think actually that people got physically sick when Jesus would say things like that. Because it, yeah. it, just at the point when he can explain it, what does he say? He says, no, my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. And you think, oh, my goodness. You know, oh, this yeah. is, that's, and, it, and it scandalized people. In fact, a lot of his disciples left. Not just the, the, the people, the curiosity seekers, but a lot of the disciples said, I can't take this. And they left. But the point is, I think, with the, like with the washing of the feet, if you don't get this, you don't get Jesus. It's who he is, right? So, but that's a good, that's a good, op, that's a good observation. Yeah, I was going to say too that, you know, with what you were saying, Michael, with it being 92% unique and kind of filling in the gaps of the synoptics, uh -huh. was that he, with him focusing as you pointed out, half on the last week, and then I wouldn't have the percentage, but the number of, you know, the amount of time he spends on those 11 scenes with the individuals, yeah. it's just really focusing in on, you know, that it is a unique relationship with Christ, that yes, he did all these things for all of these people, mm -hmm. but really honing in and making it personal, you know, really giving that amount of time of like, look what he did with this one person. Yeah. So what did he do for you? And then with the amount of time with that week leading up to his, um, to the crucifixion yeah. that, you know, it, it's just, you know, to be humbled that as, you know, if you're accepting Christ, that this is what he went through. So yes, the birth and the genealogy, this is all so important, but really helping you know, potential believers and believers to identify with what Christ did for us. Yeah. And, yeah. and really driving home that personal relationship. I, I really love that. Yeah. Well, so what do you guys think about half, half being the, the last week? Is that just a function of over time? The Passion Week took on more significance? I, I don't really have a good 
handle on that? Anybody got any ideas on why he would spend more time on the passion as opposed to Matthew, Mark, and Luke? And if you give a good answer, I'll write it down and I'll teach it like I thought of it. So please <laughs> go ahead. I'm always looking for someone else to do my homework for me. I mean, do you think that's a good idea? Over time, the last week became more significant? I don't know. Adam? To me, to me, the significance starts with the union, right? Like the union of if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, and, yeah. I, you know, I'm in you, and you and me, and yeah, it just starts with all this union in it. It just creates like, I don't know, I guess this cloud over this week of redemption, you know, I, I don't know. It, 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 it was amazing to me to read through that and it, it going through the vine. And I think John really grabs that idea of us all being one. Yes. Union. And I think that's really summed up in the last week of Jesus's life. Cause that's what he came for. He came to die for us you know and for for us to live you know so i think that unity that union of us with with god you've seen me you've seen the father and all of you know the embodiment of you know everything he's gifted to us that's yeah. i think john really nails that yeah i them and me let us be brought to perfect unity i've never thought of it that way that's good yeah I just want to share another observation that I was reading. Just the feel that I got, it seems like the <clears throat> Matthew, Mark, and Luke are more Jewish kind of gospel. And John is a very universal. Mm. Uh, my, well, my thinking is that, is it possible that because by that time, the Gentiles, there's a lot of big group of Gentiles, and when he's writing it, he's just not focusing on Jesus being the Messiah yes. to, to, you know, as trying to defend or explain all that. And John is trying to actually tell everyone in the world, indicating that, so it actually fits into more our, our current understanding of Jesus than Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which is a more Judaism, uh, Judy, you know, ism kind of a mosaic message. That's uh -huh. just a feel from reading John compared to the other three gospels that I have. Yeah, I, I think that's probably right. I mean, it's written and probably written in Ephesus as to this circuit of churches that we read about in Revelation that he's responsible for. And, and certainly there, there, it's a huge Jewish audience, but there's a, there's a Gentile element there. I mean, you know, we see the same kind of tension in Romans, right? Between the Jews and the Gentiles in the church, there's, there's tension. And so, yeah, so maybe uh, John definitely thinks like a Jew, though. He, he um, and he uses words like logos. When he, he this is a good point. Uh, a lot of people would say, "Oh, logos." He calls Jesus the the word. Well, logos is the Greek word, but um, he he's thinking debar. He thinks in terms of the the Hebrew Bible. So believe me, when he says logos, he means debar. And the word is in in the in the Hebrew Bible. God creates everything through the word. I mean, it's. Um, yeah, he writes in Greek, but he thinks in Hebrew. But I, I do think there are a lot of Gentiles in his audience, though. I, I, I like what you're saying there. I, I also noticed, like, uh, kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God. Yes. 
Like where where was that? Where okay. what happened? That, to that's another you don't don't realize it, but that's another very Jewish idea. Kingdom of heaven. Okay, okay. in Ju in Judaism we try not to say God. So kingdom of heaven is basically a, a roundabout way of saying the reign of God. Kingdom uh, is really God's reign, and heaven is just a way of not saying God. So uh, the, 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 the announcing that the kingdom of God has come is that the reign of God is here. God has begun to reign is, is, is how it's been, it's been explained to me. I don't want to say God. And, and, and even in, in Judaism, they'll, go, they'll say G slash D. They won't even write the zero just to not write it out. So yeah, kingdom of God is a metaphor for the reign, reign of God. That helps me understand the way the phrase is used anyway. I wonder if uh, Adam, correct me if I'm wrong. I wonder if Adam's point is that in John, you actually don't hear language of kingdom of God or kingdom of oh, heaven. Is that what you said? I, yeah, I, that's yeah. how I took it. Yeah, and so yeah. that's that's unique uh, because you, it's so yeah. so prevalent in the synoptics, and yet it's it seems to be absent in John. Oh, yeah. I'm sorry. I was I wasn't listening. I totally missed that. Now, well, so make make your point again now that I'm listening. <laughs> Say, say it one more time, Adam. Yeah, just reading through uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you see a big emphasis on okay. a, the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, you know, whether it's coming here or, you know, whatever Jesus is doing at the time, like a lot, and to the yeah. point in John that it's just not there. Huh. He, they don't, he doesn't talk about kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven. I've never, I've never seen that. Yeah, he seems to talk more. He seems to almost use um, language about eternal life. I don't know if it's, I don't know if it's fair to say as a substitute. I don't know if that's the right word I'm looking for, but certainly in terms of emphasis, because you have a lot less kingdom language in John than you do in the Synoptics, and certainly a lot more emphasis on life and eternal life. Yeah, the kingdom, the word kingdom, kingdom is only three times in the whole gospel. Mm. It's twice, and it happens twice in chapter three, and then once in, or twice in, uh, in eighteen. Yeah, thir three, three. It can't enter the kingdom of God unless you're born again. So that was with the whole. And interesting, he would use that term talking to Nicodemus because again, it's kind of a Jewish idea. Uh, but then again, at the end of chapter 18, he just, he, it's not kingdom of God, it's just his kingdom he's talking about. So, interesting. Yeah. And that's so, where, less, so less Jewish. Yeah, that whole unity thing, like, how it just seems like there's a lot of, a, like, love, like, the love of God coming through John, hmm. you know, into individuals you know and not so much as a broad like umbrella but you hey you uh -huh. sit on my lap you know kind of thing it's just i don't know well do you think that's because he's a pastor is he speaking there as a pastor yeah i think there's a whole lot of identity there you know definitely yeah son child cousin that's an interesting point, you know, yeah. for me. Um, yeah. If you, read, if you read first, second, and third John, you'll see this wonderful heart 
that he has. I think it's there that he says, you know, I would write to you, but I want to see you face to face. You get a feeling of it, of him as a person, as this old, they, they call him the elder, this old person who's so loving and, and um, I don't know, as a person, I think he his voice comes through, at least to me it does. I think Cassandra has her hand up and then, then we'll listen to, and then Kelly has a question. Um, I think you were asking about the passion, um, and my take on it, but it's not just for the passion, but I think in general, my guess would be that, I mean, John had lived the longest and I'm pretty sure that by then heresies were already creeping in. And I think that a lot of his gospel, he indirectly starts to address things that he started to see pop up like that Jesus was not God himself, you know? So in the beginning, the first chapter, he immediately addresses that. Um, I think maybe uh, a lot of the stuff that was popping up was causing um, more division in the church, which is why he includes that whole narrative of, you know, being one. And I think he, he you know, when the first gospels were written, they were written kind of close together. Um, but he had this gap of time where he could see the, what people needed then. And um, I mean, you know, we know that Jesus said way more than even all four gospels recorded. And so John after, what was it, 30 or 40 more years, maybe he's like, you know what, I've, I've heard this come up so many times. Let me focus in on some of the things that Jesus said that the first writers didn't point out. Yeah, well, one of the things that I left out, and in, in, we didn't talk about the life situation, and the life situation has to do with heresies. There were two heresies he was fighting. The first one was that uh, John the Baptist um, was the Messiah. There were, uh, in Ephesus, remember, Paul meets people who only know John's baptism, and there, was, there were a group of people who worshiped John. There still is a, a, tech, a group of people, they're called Mandeans, who worship John the Baptist. I mean, that sounds pretty crazy. Uh, so one thing, one heresy he's, he's addressing is that, and when, when John the Baptist speaks in the Gospel of John, you get kind of tired of, he over and over, he's, he insists, he's not the Messiah, I'm not him, I'm only a voice in the wilderness, right? And then the other heresy was uh, uh, Gnosticism, a Gnostic for, uh, 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 a flavor of Gnosticism called uh, Docetism, is from the word, uh, Greek word dakeo, which means to seem. And the heresy was that Jesus only seemed to come in the flesh. And so what he had Jesus doing in John, touch, feel, I'm flesh and bones, not a spirit. In John, he eats a piece of fish to show them that he is actually, you know, it's a bodily, bodily resurrection is very, uh, very important. And there's a famous Gnostic gospel called the Gospel of Peter. And in this gospel, there's a scene, um, Jesus is on the cross and Peter is in a cave somewhere weeping and uh, overlooking the scene. And in this false gospel, docetic gospel, the spirit of Jesus appears to Peter and says, Peter, don't weep. That's not me down there. The, 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 the docetists were teaching that Jesus only seemed to come in the flesh and that um, the spirit of Jesus left before the crucifixion. So Jesus, it made no sense to them that Jesus would be crucified. The Gnostics didn't like that. And John is... You know, that's logos. The word becomes, boom, flesh, see? Bodily resurrection. So um, 
Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. Kelly, did you have a question? Yeah, I was just going to, Cassandra actually mentioned it in a different way, but I was going to say that after, you know, John's had so much time that maybe he's driving home the point that people had, um, you know, reacted the most positively towards, you know, really yes. driving home those points. So making sure that we, we don't miss that. Yeah. Um, and, you know, because another thing, when I was doing some research out of the, um, aside from the book and whatnot too, is that there's very little, if any, you know, exorcisms, anything, any encounters at all with demons or the enemy. So, you know, again, just keeping it all about love. It's about, you know, it's just like constantly driving home your point, you know, um, um, just, you know, that even Adam mentioned about it's your relationship with Christ. Look what he did for you. You know, he can do it for you too. So it, it just, that just kept, every time I went through it, I'm like, all right, that's just kept being the, the message. You know, it wasn't a lot of, uh, you know, negative feelings in it. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah, Mark is very interested in the demonic ministry, the ministry to exorcism. Mm -hmm. Very good. I have a question. Okay. Um, on those one-to-one uh, -one with Jesus and somebody else, how would the details collect? Is that just pure inspiration by the Holy Spirit, or how, how do they know? What happened? Like, let's suppose between Jesus and Nicodemus, or Jesus and and the woman at the well, Samaria. Yeah. You know, how did they get all that detailed conversation? Um, I mean, it has to be the Holy Spirit. I can't find any other. Yeah, um, I, I think I, I think we want the answer to be one thing, and this and the answer is probably more than one thing. I think it's definitely the Holy Spirit. You think Nicodemus becomes a part of the community later on? I mean, he and Joseph bury Jesus, and you can imagine. Nicodemus sitting down with John and maybe telling him the story. I don't know. The woman at the well, it's a little harder, but um, you, you do know the disciples come up after they've had this encounter. And maybe at that point, Jesus gives, you know, sort of gives them a blow by blow. This is, you know, what she said. I don't know. Uh, that's a great question. But yeah, how, how, how they know, I mean, the hardest one for me is the Gethsemane, the, you know, the, the knowing uh, that this intimate prayer that Jesus has when the three of them are off asleep somewhere. And I guess the only answer then could be that, you know, the Holy spirit reveals it to them. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm good with that, but uh, I heard a sermon once that said, um, when Jesus came, when he, uh, rose and then stayed for another 40 days. Yeah. During those 40 days, he taught them about what happened in the garden because otherwise they wouldn't have known about it. Yeah. Um, so I do think he, he taught a lot of the things that they didn't hear. And I also think that we should not discount eavesdropping. I mean, with Nicodemus on the roof, I mean, if I was Peter and John, I'd be by the door listening to every word that was said. I mean, he yeah. didn't say I couldn't. So. <laughs> yeah, and I think sometimes the answer is something like, something like that. But you do, you do know, after the resurrection, there's this, there's this odd thing that happens that all of a sudden they remember things that he said and they remember that they had put their cloak cloaks on the ground and, and uh, that the donkey had walked on them and that sort of thing. There's this awareness that, that, that comes to them after the Holy spirit comes. So I think all, it's all those, it's, it's not the answer is just one thing. The answer is sort of all those things. Yeah. Maybe they were eavesdropping. 
maybe Jesus said, yeah, you know, that night, Nicodemus, no, this is what we talked about. Uh, yeah, I, I wish there was a really easy one thing answer, but I think it's probably more complicated than that. But I think it's a great question, even if you can't answer it, you know, with a simple answer. Karen, I think you got your hand up. How are people putting their hands up? There's a <laughs> there's a digital way you can do it. It's oh, a digital way, that? right? No, one thing that I noticed that I really appreciated about it was in uh, the previous Gospels, he talks about, you know, don't tell anybody. Yeah. Um, and it's very secretive, whereas this one, he really focused on uh, the time. Now is not the time. And it, it seemed a little softer, hmm. and it was just more like... Um, it was all God's timing and that was more of an emphasis and in multiple different stories I had written down on uh, 7-3 and 8-20 and a few other different ones uh, John 4 he had written where it was more about his timing um, and it, it just seemed a little softer as in don't tell anybody but it was yeah. you know now's not the time and then the other question that I had and that uh, really can I interrupt you just one second that, yeah. that whole thing of timing again in John that this moment and it's a it's a moment we read right past but what happens is the Greeks come to Jesus right mm -hmm. and and when Jesus hears that these Gentiles have come to him all, like you're saying all through the gospel he said it's not my time my, my time is not your come my time is not your come and all of a sudden the Greeks come to him and he goes the time has come it's almost mm -hmm. like he was looking for that as a sign or something it's okay go, yeah. go, go back to what you're saying and then the, the other thing that sort of struck me was with the story with uh, Lazarus and Mary and Martha and how just in, especially just the way I was raised and I'm sure you know, a lot of other people may feel similarly, you don't question God. You don't question, you know, like, why didn't you get here sooner to stop my brother from dying? Why didn't you help him when you could have? Um, why did you do it the way you did? Or just the disbelief and the question that came along with that. And it just, to me, they didn't seem to go hand in hand. I guess for me, faith is easier. And just the, the whole idea of questioning God was just like, oh, how rude. Yeah, but, but put yourself in the scene. I mean, he, oh, yeah. he, had, he had plenty of time to get there. And mm -hmm. he stayed where he was. Like for, and so, you know, and, and of course, the purpose is he, he gets there. Lazarus is already, in, is already in the grave. There's no way Lazarus is going to be raised from the dead. He makes it impossible. But, you know, I think that, you know, Mar Martha and Mary both say the identical thing to Jesus. When he talks to Martha, they talk about the, uh, you know, about uh, the resurrection. But when Mary cries, I think it's, they say the same things. But I think that I think Mary is hurt and stays where she is, even when she hears that Jesus has come. I think she's hurt that he didn't come because they, they both say, if you'd have been here, he wouldn't have died, which is also interesting because people believe that he can heal someone who's sick, but they don't seem to realize that he can raise one from, from the dead, although he's already done it. That seems mm -hmm. odd to me. Or he can heal and not be there. Yeah, or he can heal. Yeah, and he does that too, right? Mm -hmm. Go home, your servants well. Yeah. What doesn't make sense to me? What doesn't make sense? What doesn't make sense to me is that, you know, raising someone from a death after three days is is a such a significant matter. But yes. how come it's not in Matthew, Mark, or Luke? 
it's such a you know I it's just I was just like why is it unique over only here after ninety years I mean you I mean after sixty years you wrote it down but Matthew well, Mark of Luke okay well here, here here's a, here's a little answer for you okay we I had someone calculate the amount of Jesus life that's in the Gospels it's point zero nine okay if Jesus life is a hundred dollars we have nine cents of it. So okay. like uh, how many other things, how many people did he raise from the dead like, like that? Who, I mean, how, why is it that only Matthew mentions the fact that at the resurrection, all these graves open and people come walk strolling into town? Why does only Matthew, you yeah. would think that some, you know, that would be a pretty big deal. Yeah, Michael, you just basically sum up in, you know, uh, in the last chapter of John, you know, the, the whole, the, the book that he writes, the whole world cannot, you know, yeah. cannot feel you know, so yeah, uh, yeah. So that zero that nine is a that's a big number for me. We have this. It's perfect because God's word is perfect. Point zero nine is a perfect number. But how many more incredible things that he say and do that we're not going to know about till, you know, like John says, the whole world could fill the could be filled with the books that could be written about him. But I sure I sure wish I had more than point zero nine. <laughs> Michael, did you ever hear the theory that uh, Simon the Pharisee was the same Simon as Judas Iscariot's father, and that Judas Iscariot might be related to Mary, Lazarus, and Martha? No. Yeah, you should look that up. It was a very interesting read. Um, I was doing research for the when we when we uh, were reading about Simon the Pharisee. Uh huh. Um, because I always thought he was talking to Peter when he said Simon. And then when I read it, I was like, eh, maybe not. And then I was oh. like, oh, it's a different Simon. Yeah. And Everybody's then I went down this Simon. rabbit trail about him being um, Judas's father. Because Judas Iscariot's also called Judas Simon's son. And they're like, why would they mention that, you know, if they hadn't mentioned him somewhere else? And then they're like, well... Someone okay. pulled out Mary's sins, and who would better know them than someone who was in her family and stuff like that. So that's it. I have never heard that, but I can see where they got that. I, I can tell you it's not, you know, it's not like in Eusebius or anything like that. He doesn't he doesn't seem to be aware of that. But it, basically everyone's named Simon. You know, <laughs> that's like you know, John or something. Or like Rachel yeah. nowadays. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Hey guys, I, uh, I, for, my, for Michael's sake, I think I'll wrap it up because I got five till, so he might want a little five-minute transition for his seven o'clock well, class. Well, pray for me. I'm going to talk to a yoga group about Hesed, and I think it's a Jewish yoga group, so it's going to be an interesting, <laughs> yeah, interesting time to get yeah. to talk about Jesus. Yeah. Well, I tell you what. Let's let's remember. Let's let's pray for Michael, and then also, if you want to unmute. Uh, for just a second, will you join me in just thanking Michael for uh, being with us this last month? Thank you so much. It's All right. God bless you guys. Such a blessing. Thank you, Michael. And, uh, Thank you. See you. Have a great rest of the evening. Keep, keep your thinking hats on. Okay. <laughs> Bye, guys. All right. Bye. Thank you, Michael. Bye.